Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From the mountains to the coast to the forest, Georgia is a beautiful place for spending time outdoors. GPB journalists are celebrating that splendor with Wild Georgia, a series of in-depth reports airing this month during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Ross Terrell and Emily Jones are among those working on the series. Ross is here in Atlanta, and Emily is on the line from Savannah. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hey, Virginia. Hey. So, Ross, I'm going to start with you because you kicked off the series Wild Georgia with Atlanta's tree canopy. You headed five miles from downtown to Lionel Hampton Beecher Hills Park. This is a very special forest that urban areas just don't have. Some of the trees have been cut, um, but a lot of the trees in here are probably 100 years old. Some of them are older. That's Catherine Kolb with Eco Addendum. Her group leads nature walks and tours around the metro area. You know, when we see these plants in the ecosystem, that means our soils are intact. And that's a very special thing. So, Russ, your guide says the forest is special for an urban area. What makes it so special? Yeah, well, a number of things. Uh, first, being this close to a major city and having uh, a dense forest. Um, there are also trees that are you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old that we were standing around. Um, and a lot of native species. Um, there was some green on this day we went a, a few weeks ago, but that was invasive species. But there are a lot of trees that... I was touching and looking at that, you know, hundreds of years ago, those same people were looking at those same trees. Mm, No hugging? No hugging of the trees? I did not hug the trees. Pollen was bad that day. Well, you reported very beautifully on it, but this is the thing. How rare is it for residents of an urban area like Atlanta to be able to hike near their homes like you did there? Right. So you're talking the city of Atlanta of about uh, 500,000 people. Uh, The metro area is much larger. Um, And... 47% of the area is tree canopy. That is almost 50%. Almost 50%. The city's goal is to get it to 50%, but we'll get to that. Um, But that's more than any other large city in the country. Um, So to be able to go in your backyard or to be able to go to a park, um, that's something that is, I mean, it's rare and, and it's special, which I didn't know this at first. And I was in the forest. I'm like, all these trees are bare. We're crunching on dead leaves. What's so great about it? But when you take somebody like Catherine that has such a trained eye who could point out, look, this little three-leaf plant that's coming up from the ground, don't step on that because mm-hmm. that's native and that's special. Your guide also mentioned that the soil was intact. What does that mean and why does that matter? Right. So this isn't to say none of the trees in the canopy get cut down, but it's when they get cut down, the soil is not being dug up. It's not being replaced. Um, so you are able to regenerate with the original trees and species that were there. Uh, so in this case, uh, there was a plant she pointed out called Catesby's Trillium. There was a little southern, uh, I think she called it a papasil. You might have to fact check me on that. Um, but it goes back to the, the nature of Atlanta. It's very hilly. And farmers weren't able to dig in their roots and farm and plow the land because of that, meaning kind of by accident or 
by a stroke of luck, Atlanta was able to maintain the soil that generated the forest when we were settled back in the 1800s. Which is a rare thing. But residents do love these beautiful big trees. That's part of the appeal of Atlanta. But they also often cut them down. Now, this isn't not just developers, but homeowners. How, how is that bigger is better changing the, the landscape? Yeah, it's really a catch-22. I talked with uh, Trees Atlanta, uh, Greg Levine, and he pointed out a lot of times it's the same lot, but it's a smaller house being torn down for a large one. Mm-hmm. So we're not even talking adding people. And his point was, we're not increasing density, we're just increasing mass. Um, And you also look at people not knowing what trees are in their yard. Uh, There's often the idea, if it's storms are coming, the tree may look dead, so let's take it down. Uh, Over in Decatur, they're kind of having the same fight of a tree being, they don't know whose property it's on, so somebody's like, eh, I don't want it. They cut it down. Um, And so you see these metro cities kind of grappling with this idea of how do we protect these trees, but also giving homeowners and developers the chance to come in and build and kind of shape the landscape to be how they want. Mm -hmm. But Atlanta does have an ordinance to protect the city's tree canopy. Does it work? Protect, we'll use that very loosely. And that's from the city, not me. Uh, I I talked with Tim Keene, and he says, so right now, depending on the acre size and depending on what you want to do, if you want to remove trees, you pay a fine. Um, Or you pay a fee, I should say. Where that money goes to staff the arborist, it could go to a number of places, but there's not a guarantee that more trees are being planted. So it it doesn't really protect them. If you have the money, you can cut down as many as you want. And that's what they want to change is we've got to put something in place where you can't just come in and remove them without a guarantee that, A, either you'll plant more or, hey, this tree is is old enough, it's still alive, you can't take this one down. So are efforts underway to rework Atlanta's tree ordinance to make sure that that remains intact? Yeah. uh, They've they've done a couple studies using uh, urban ecology framework, looking at the capacity of the city, uh, trees on on certain public areas. Um, One thing I found interesting was Keen pointed out, we really got to take advantage of the street space. Uh, That means, you know, whether that's putting concrete barriers in the middle of streets, building trees there, Mm -hmm. um, developing more green space, putting more on sidewalks. Um, But people want the trees, which is why they move here. And but to stay here, it's kind of like, oh, we, we got to cut them down. Um, and you see the city really grappling with this idea of how do we encourage development but keep what makes us special. All right. So we do have a fact check. Papasil is the tree that you were talking about. P-A-P-A-S-I-L. Tall tree. It's not a timber tree. That's what we learned. So National Geographic has a special cities issue out this month. And we spoke with the publication's senior environment editor, Robert Kunzig, who told us Atlanta's tree canopy offers more advantages than just shade and beauty. Let's hear. That's a huge advantage in terms of cleaning the air, in terms of also of absorbing the runoff from these intense storms that we're increasingly getting with climate change. Now, you can hear the full interview with David Kunzig at GPBnews.org. But Ross, he's saying trees can help an ecosystem recover after a storm, help clean the air, but storms also take trees down. So that's certainly always been the natural balance of thing. But with climate change, is that balance tipping? So well, another thing I found interesting in, in this hike was there's a watershed uh, view to this. I think when we often we think of trees, yes, we think of the shade. I talked to residents out in the cater and they're like, it's a five degree difference when I'm walking my dog down the sidewalk in the summer. Uh, but you also have to look at it. Trees kind of play this natural barrier from water going into uh, the, the, the storm drains. Yes, into yeah. the drains, the creeks. Um, and I went down by a creek 
and the erosion just from a few years ago was massive because of the lack of trees, more houses being built. So they do play this role. And, and I talk with uh, Jacqueline Echoes, who's with the watershed, and she points out the more trees you take down, that cost is then being put on taxpayers because now you have to clean up spills. Uh, there was a massive spill uh, in Fulton County. Uh, there are spills into the Flint River Creek, uh, or Flint River, excuse me. Um, so they kind of do have this double advantage of shade and breeze, but also preventing taxpayers from having to foot the bill of increasing or bettering the sewer system because they're kind of the natural system in that degree. One of the cells there. That's GPB reporter Ross Terrell. We're talking about his contribution to GPB's Wild Georgia series. Emily Jones, let's hear about your story. This is about something that lives in the ocean. All right, we couldn't resist. Emily, you are based on the Georgia coast, and you reported on shark eyesight. How do sharks see? Uh, Well, since we started with the Jaws music, I I would be remiss if I didn't note that sharks are not, you know, the sort of intentional monster killers uh, the way that the Great White is portrayed in that movie. That's that's kind of a myth. Um, But the truth is that, well, we do know that about their their kind of predatory behavior. It's not they don't attack humans the way that that shark does. There's actually a lot we don't know about what sharks can see, what they can't see. um, And that is why the researcher that I spoke to for this story is doing this work, studying all different kinds of sharks. Little tiny sharks, really big sharks, uh, you know, great whites, that kind of thing, to figure out what what they can see, how it works, and what we can learn from that. Well, anyone who has snorkeled or scuba dived knows that it can get pretty dark in the ocean. At certain depths, the sunlight doesn't penetrate. The ocean can be murky. So what is so special about sharks' eyeballs and what they can and can't see down there? Uh, well, it, I mean, it varies from from shark to shark, but one of the species of sharks that uh, this researcher I spoke to, Christine Bador at Georgia Southern University, um, she was showing me one of the sharks that she has in her lab in these big giant tanks that she has. Um, actually, when it's daylight, uh, you know, like it was when I went and visited the lab, the lights are on. You can't even see, it. Does, it looks like the shark doesn't even have pupils in its eyes, um, and it does. It's just that the sharks are so well adapted to that dark environment that they live in. Um, that, you know, the the pupil, the black part of your eye that that gets bigger when it's dark and, and constricts when it's bright out, constricts so much um, when it's light out for these sharks because they're used to this dark environment and their pupil is like super, super well adapted so it can catch all possible light and they can actually see apparently in the dark. Well, given that there is so little light, uh, they have a sort of sixth sense. How can they sense prey at long distances? Uh, Well, that actually bumps us up against another really common myth about sharks, um, which I was kind of surprised to learn there's really not much evidence for. And that's something I've certainly heard before. You probably have, too. Um, The idea that a shark can sense a drop of blood Uh in in a Olympic sized swimming pool. So that was something that that Christine Bedore um, and I talked about. And she said, you know, there actually isn't really any evidence for that evidence that sharks can um, can actually sense blood at that great distance or any more than anybody else can can sense blood. But they do have a sixth sense um, that's really important to her research. Uh, they can they can sense electric fields. Um, so, you know, fish are like swimming around in salt water and they're breathing it in and out. And all of that activity with the salt water creates ions, um, which which generates these electric fields around the fish. And the sharks can sense that. And that is is key for them in, in going after their prey. So this is really interesting to know about, but how about practical applications? Why does it matter that we know about how sharks perceive the world? 
yeah, well, there's sort of lots of different directions that can go in. But one I was really interested in um, is particularly interesting here on the Georgia coast where shrimping is a huge industry. Um, and that is that shrimpers have a big problem with sharks attacking their nets. You know, they they capture these nets and are dragging them along behind their boats. They're full of shrimp and all kinds of other uh, stuff known as bycatch that get caught up in those nets, too. So there's fish. There's It's like it's just like a net of shark food that they're dra- dragging behind them. Um, so the sharks are really into that and they attack the nets, which is a big problem. Um, it, you know creates these big holes in the nets and they're expensive. It's it's a whole mess. Um, so something that, that the researcher Bador is working on is uh, trying to use that electric field sense that I described to make sort of deterrent devices that that say to the sharks, like, stay away. These nets are not full of food for you, you know, to try and try and cut down on that problem for Georgia shrimpers. So let's hear just a little bit. You got out on a boat with Bador uh, to talk about this more. Bedour also does research on the Georgia Bulldog, a research shrimp boat at the UGA Marine Extension in Brunswick. Shrimper Catfish McLean is part of the crew. But yeah, so we'll be dropping the tri-net right now, and it acts just like our bigger nets. They bring in small nets called tri-nets. So that is you out on, we should have noted, the Georgia Bulldog <laughs> Shrimp yes. Research Boat. So what do you think listeners can learn from this series as a whole? From the series as a whole, I'd say just how much fascinating stuff is going on in Georgia. I mean, you know, here on the coast, I I get to learn all this really cool stuff about what shrimpers are up to and sharks and how they interact with each other. I mean, you know, for that, I'd say like folks in the rest of the state can learn how much incredible research and work is going on on the coast, you know, beyond just like the beaches they enjoy. Um, But also, I mean, I didn't just as as Ross was saying, you know, I didn't realize how big of a deal Atlanta's tree canopy was. Like that's definitely something I'll, I'll pay more attention to next time I'm up in Atlanta. And I think I think that's true for a lot of Georgians. I mean, we're kind of aware of of how much, you know, incredible research and just incredible nature there is out around us. But, uh, you know, it's it's really great to kind of shine a spotlight on that. I think it's a lot of stuff I personally didn't know about. Emily Jones and Savannah, thanks so much. Thank you. And Ross Terrell, thank you for being with us. Thank you. They are both contributing to the Wild Georgia series, which you can hear during Morning Edition and All Things Considered for a few more days. And the stories are all together at gpbnews.org. Okay, so last week we heard about the 47-year drive to get footage of Aretha Franklin recording her amazing Grace Gospel album out into the world. The film is now out in theaters. We asked for your thoughts on Aretha singing gospel. That record sold more copies than any of her pop or soul records. Amber responded that Pink Cadillac is her favorite Aretha song. So, so far, pop is winning on our Facebook group. If you want to put in a vote for gospel or any other Aretha tune, go to GPB Radio's On Second Thought Facebook group and post. Coming up, Corey Graves is determined to be our first, the first gay woman of color to win a director's Oscar. She's starting young to achieve that dream. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us with that and hear more stories with On Second Thought. Hulu's true crime drama tells the story of a young girl named Gypsy Rose Blanchard. She's currently doing time for plotting the murder of her abusive mother, Dee Dee. This is the state's case against Gypsy Rose Blanchard. She's got paraplegia, epilepsy, heart murmurs, and she's allergic to sugar. Everything I do, I do for her. My mom is my best friend. All she wants to do is keep me safe. Gypsy! Have you been able to confirm the girl's medical history? Which part? 
Joey King and Patricia Arquette star in this series, which was produced in Savannah. Corey Graves worked as a production assistant for the act while in her junior year of studying film production at the Savannah College of Art and Design, or SCAD. Kalina Buller of GPB's podcast The Credits caught up with Corey and Savannah to talk about the role of a production assistant, or PA. Corey's also working as a director of a student-produced sitcom on campus. She told Kalina that from her vantage point, Georgia's film industry is becoming more diverse behind the scenes. When I started at SCAD and I started doing these sitcoms in 2017, it really became female dominant with regards to they were the producers, they were the directors, they were the camera coordinators, they're doing the switch, they're on cameras. It's been amazing. I've had the opportunity, even in professional sets, to work with such powerful and respected female women of color ADs, directors. The, la- uh, the act was directed mostly by women. It's just really nice to watch because everyone's creative and everyone deserves an opportunity to express themselves. So I love it. <laughs> I mean, it shows. I mean, yeah. you've been smiling from ear to ear since you stepped in here. Yeah, it's my f- I love this. I love this industry. It's so much fun. There are some people that don't necessarily know about the world of production assistance. Yeah, so it depends on where you fall. If you're in the office, then you've got a lot on your hands with regard, which is where I'm at right now, with regards to destroying out the correct paperwork, the contracts, um, making sure catering is being set up. You're kind of just in charge of getting one thing, one thing to another place. Right. Uh, and if you're on set, it's a lot more different. You could be in charge of your actors mm-hmm. and knowing where they're at and making sure they're in the right costume, making sure that the right set at the right time, that they have their wires on and everything like that. You're in control of that. If you're in charge of walkies and distro, you're in charge of making sure everything's getting out to everyone, um, making sure people have communication. Um, then there's your base camp who makes sure that, you know, contracts, prepping the schedules, all that kind of stuff. So you're really just mini assistant directors to help the director and the assistant director and make sure the pressure's taken off of them and they can focus on the big picture and we handle all the re- like all the minor things and the rest. Gotcha. Yeah. I find it fascinating that people say they want to be a PA and then they say, oh, just, just give me an opportunity and I, they get there and they get the opportunity to be a production assistant and you never see them again. Yeah. Because people really honestly don't understand how difficult the job can be. Yeah, it's, you know? it's really hard, especially since production assistants aren't part of a union. So you're not guaranteed a 12-hour turnaround like some other departments are for sleeping. You're not guaranteed that you get to eat lunch on time. Everyone else has to because there's no penalties against you because you know, you're just a normal worker. Like They obviously follow labor laws, but there's no extra protections that other departments get. So it's really hard, uh, depending on when you're filming and how and what you're filming. It can really take a toll on your body. (laughs) Like uh, I think I walk on average on average on my last show 15 miles a day, like outside in the cold. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. It's not an easy job. No, it's not for everyone. You're right about that. Um, So do you have aspirations of becoming an assistant director? Yeah, I want to become an. a career second AD, yeah. so taking care of like the paperwork and the contracts and scheduling, and um, then move into directing from there. Yeah. yeah. Have you always wanted to be in the industry? Yeah, since like I was ten. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite movie? Oh Lord, that's a loaded question. There's categories. You have categories. <laughs> um, I the film that made me want to go into film and TV was Moulin Rouge. 
originally I wanted to be an editor. And that editing huh. style is so unique and technical and everything is done for a reason. And I loved it, like breaking it down and being like, oh my gosh, he did it this way because he wanted you to invoke that you felt like you were there at the party and you were drunk. Um, but Star Wars <laughs> is just an overall favorite right? and all that stuff, so. Okay. Yeah. Um, who are the kinds of people that you like to work with on set? Because um, we all have our favorite types. Yes. <laughs> You never want to work with someone who has an ego, hmm. who thinks they're better than everyone else, who thinks they know everything. Um, humility is a huge thing. People who listen, who are kind, who are fun, who bring positivity to the set. Um, there's a huge difference. It's just in the few shows that I've worked on and how a set is run. It can make or break a show, honestly. Um, yeah, you were right just about that. by the vibes people put out. And so I've worked with on a show where someone was the they were always screaming and yelling and everything felt so rushed and it was horrible. But it's a job and you're getting paid for it. And then I were on the act, that crew was so amazing. At the end everyone was in tears because everyone was happy to be there. We were all happy to show up. The actors loved everyone. We all loved the actors. Um People listened to each other. Everyone was held accountable, but there was no neat reason to hold anyone accountable because everyone was there doing their job. So hard right. workers, um, <clears throat> responsible, humility, positivity, and just, you know, good individuals overall are the best people to work with. Right. Yeah. And um, what are some things that you would like to see happen here in the state of Georgia or, or even elsewhere? But um, in our industry generally um i would love to see honestly more people of color in our industry um uh it's uh, like unfortunate to say on my first show there were only besides the actors because it was a uh, periodic civil war era piece with regards to the crew members i believe only a handful of us were people of color and on the act, same thing, only like a few of us were people of color. And so I think there, I think there should be more, I would like to see more people of color stepping into roles in the industry um, if it's something they want to pursue because it's definitely um, something I think we can work on in general. What would you say if you could talk with 10-year-old Corey right now? Oh. What would you tell her? Oh, <laughs> there's so many things. Uh, <laughs> that is a deep question. There's so many things <laughs> that I found out when I was 18. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I feel like, don't worry, you're not confused. This is what's happening. Right. Um, I would honestly tell her not to stop grinding, um, to like keep like pushing and keep doing what, I, what you're doing because... Um, honestly, I feel like just like my mom in general, watching her grind and hustle so hard to support a family of three kids mm. in Southern California during the recession, it was insane. And so I think I got my like hustle from her and like trying to figure out how to like survive and whatnot. So I'd say like, don't stop that because it's going to get you farther than where you think you're going to go end up going. Um, cause I never thought I'd end up putting myself through college and end up working in the industry at age, well, I'm 22 now, but starting mm -hmm. at age 21, I never thought that that would happen. So um, I would tell her not to stop and that things are going to play out for her if she just like 
keeps at it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what would you say if you had a chance to speak with your 40 year old self? What uh, would you tell that woman? <laughs> um, I would tell her. I'd ask her, oh God, is it worth it? <laughs> be like, is it worth it? Because I'm so tired. <laughs> um, did you breathe? Did you get to sleep today? Okay. Right. Um, I would probably, I would probably ask her, be like, did we get to where we want to get? Did we get, did we go where we wanted to get to? Because mm-hmm. um, I want to win, and I want to be one of the youngest POC women directors, gay women directors, there's a lot of minorities there to win an Academy Award for directing something. Um, uh, so goals, so many goals. So I'm just gonna be like, did we make it? Like, are we there? Have we yeah. made it yet? And if not, what do I need to do to get there? <laughs> yeah. That's what I would, I would ask your question. Okay. Yeah. That's GPB's Kalina Buller speaking with Corey Graves, a junior studying film production at SCAD. Corey also worked as a production assistant on the Hulu series The Act, which was produced in Savannah and is now in its final episodes. That conversation came from GPB's podcast, The Credits, and you can subscribe for free at gpb.org forward slash podcasts. Atlanta punk band The Coat Hangers has a new record out. It's called The Devil You Know. We asked them to add two more songs to our Georgia playlist of songs written or performed by a Georgian. Here are the picks from The Coat Hangers. My name's Meredith Franco. I play in The Coat Hangers. We're from Atlanta, Georgia. I play bass. I play bass. Hey, my name's Julia Kugel, also sometimes crooked coat hanger. And uh, I play guitar in The Coat Hangers from Atlanta, Georgia. The first song we want to talk about for the Georgia playlist is the Subsonics, um, their song Frankenstein. They call me Frankenstein, I was designed, my parts out of line, and electrified, pictures are so strong, that they can't be denied. I think it's one of the first songs that we actually heard by them, and... It has a really, it's just so cool. It's just really a cool We song. learned how to play it. Yeah, we did learn how to play it. We were almost going to cover uh-huh. it. Actually, we should We should. That. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> <sighs> we got to write these things down. They call me Frankenstein. I was not baptized. I broke out of Ten Commandments and it felt just fine. Yeah, you thought that you could stop me. But you shouldn't have tried. It just has kind of like an F.U. attitude to it. It's like a really great sound. I don't remember what exactly I was no, doing. Yeah. Might have been smoking weed. <laughs> it's a good bet. <laughs> it's like a creepy, like... Super creepy and like kind of... Yeah, his voice is really mm-hmm. unique. And it kind of like starts off like very like... Um, what's that word? It kind of puts you in a trance, you know, like... Da, 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 da. And you're like, what? where are we going? We're going somewhere weird. I guess 
I, I don't even know if it has a chorus, really. It just has like a really cool guitar freakout part. Mm -hmm. And every time we see him play it, it's completely different. And that's one of the best things is when an artist just is an artist that doesn't put on a show but has their own show and you're watching this thing that's happening. It's really exciting. But you couldn't cry your eyes on what you're learning to really real and really raw and comes from somewhere you know it's like Billie Holiday like never sang a song twice the same way it's kind of like that it's like oh whoa it's like ah rad I wonder what he's gonna do now and it just goes just crazy it's like <laughs> When I hear it, I'm just like, ah. Oh. And I always want to do this for some reason. Just dancing. Dance. <laughs> the second song we picked is The Black Lips, Bad Kids. The Black Lips are based in Atlanta. Bad kids, all my friends are bad kids, product of no dad kids, kids like you and me. <laughs> kind of harkens back to our youth when we would just throw things, you know, and like just go crazy. Yeah, just, you know, throw empty beer cans and everyone would just go off in a friendly way, but. That's kind of what we took from the Atlanta music scene in the beginning was just being wild. Just the, the ability to be wild and no one really was policing you. It's kind of like an anthem. Kind of like empowering song for all the people that grew up with nothing, getting picked on and then being like, whatever, we're bad kids. You're like, hey, we're from the South. Really good, good people, but if you cross us, you're gonna probably get stabbed. <laughs> and that's kind of the South. The South has a swagger to it, and it's it's more about the feel rather you than the- You can feel that, like, what everyone has been through, and like, yeah, yeah honest. Meredith Franco and Julia Kugel of the Atlanta-based punk group The Coat Hangers. Their new album is called The Devil You Know. And speaking of the Black Lips, which was one of their nominations, we're going to be speaking with them on Friday while they're out on tour. They're going to return to Atlanta just in time to grace the stage at Shaky Knees Music Festival in May. If you have a song or an artist to nominate for our Georgia playlist, you can connect with us on our Facebook group. Coming up far beyond a department store, it was a seminal Atlanta institution. We'll learn about Ridge's department store when On Second Thought continues. Stay with us. I'm Virginia Prescott.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For generations of Georgians, there was nothing like riches. Riches began in 1867, and each year more people discover there's more of what they're looking for at riches. Founded by Hungarian immigrant Morris Rich, it started as a small dry goods store on what is now Peachtree Streets in downtown Atlanta. Personal attention, complete selections, more to bring you home with a smile. The department store became an institution. One historian called Riches the communal heart and cultural temple of Atlanta. A new GPB original series explores that storied past. Riches Remembered, executive producer and On Second Thought Dean of Grammar, Don Smith, joins us now to tell us more about it. Welcome. Thank you, ma'am. Well, thank you for being here. Morris Rich founded the store in 1867, then called M. Rich and Company. He was a Hungarian Jew. Morris Rich was born Mauritius Reich in 1847. So just 20 years old when he opened his original dry goods store in Atlanta, just two years after the end of the Civil War. So was it an immediate success? Well, Atlanta was suffering, and I don't think that's a, a Southern bias to say that. Clearly it was. And he arrived with a head full of good ideas, borrowed 500 bucks from one of his brothers and opened it. And yeah, it might not have been instantaneous, but it didn't take long. He was a success reasonably quickly. And it was based on his concern for his customers. Mm -hmm. And that was inherited by everybody who came after him. And the best thing about riches to how many millions of people, I don't know, is that they were nice. Hmm. This became M. Rich and Bro and Brother in the 1870s, owing probably to this $500 loan from his brother. Riches then in the 1920s when it moved to the corner of Broad and Alabama Street. So this was a massive store. Limestone built in the Italian Renaissance style, ornate arch display windows. This is for 421 feet, swallowing 14 previous storefronts. How did this little store on what is now Peachtree Street grow into this? Well, the little store got bigger incrementally. They had a store and then a store and then a store, and then they built the flagship building. And they got where they were because they made customers happy. Mm-hmm. Now, just as Riches was expanding, national retailers, Macy's and Sears, were setting their sights on Atlanta. So what is it that set Riches apart? Was it the the name, the tradition, or the customer service? Didn't those others pride themselves on customer service, too? I'm sure at least they claimed it. But these were smart merchandisers. It was in their genes, and they were decent people, and they also had what people needed and what people wanted. They were generous. They gave free instructions on any number of things, and they had uh, at one time three corset people who offered... Corset expertise. (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. This is a few years later, of course, in the 1929, the stock market crashed. While most of the country struggled through the Great Depression, riches actually thrived. When did it peak, to your mind? Well, I think when Dick Rich was running the store. He was the last rich to be in charge of the store. But 
an example of how genuinely concerned about the customers. Atlanta ran out of money in the Depression. It could not pay its teachers, so it gave them scrip. You know, a little tag that says this is worth $50. Mm-hmm. Riches would redeem that for full cash. And that's the way they won customers. They also were very helpful when there was some catastrophe. I mean, back during the First World War, they sold things that would benefit soldiers and sailors. And in in the store every morning, when they opened the doors, they would sing World War II fight songs. <laughs> so... Who wouldn't want to shop at Riches? Uh-huh. Where the customer was king or maybe more accurately queen. Let's listen to a commercial from much later, 1967, describing the store's customer service policy. What's Riches' customer satisfaction policy? Every purchase must please you. No Riches sale is ever closed until you're satisfied. A Riches policy. It must have been... A really different experience to step off the street and into riches. Did it feel palatial and abundant? What was it? What was going on? Oh, yeah. I mean, on various floors, it felt palatial or rugged. But no, they had a wonderful, wonderful decorating staff. It was just great, great, great merchandising. But, I mean, they were as nice to the guy buying the 39-cent drawers as they were to the people up getting furniture. Mm -hmm. And the staff was drilled in the importance of the customer. They they literally had a, a printed list of rules to go by. The spirit of riches and then tightly packed type of what were the rules, in addition to being the spirit. One, the customer is always right. Two, the customer makes her own solutions. Hmm. Three, if a customer has seen an item at a better price elsewhere, we must make a quick adjustment and appreciate the fact that she has called the matter to our attention. She has. (laughs) The attitude of every Riches employee must be pleasant and gracious, no matter what the situation. Courtesy, consideration, awareness, and friendliness must be always evident. A purchase is never complete until the customer is entirely satisfied with Riches. Riches is never undersold. The pleasure of the customer is an important result of the spirit of riches. There is no limit to the areas in which the spirit of riches should be practiced. And it goes on from there. But that really is the answer. Not only did they say it, they did it. And that people loved. The purchase is not complete until the customer is satisfied. So they had a very generous return policy at riches. How far did that go? It went so far that the Wits End players, who were a cabaret company in town, where I happened to work, had a song called I Took Him Back to Riches. And it it was about a woman wanting to swap her husband. Any employees uh, tell you about taking a husband back? (laughs) No. But I heard sheets and towels that might have been used. People returned them. 
or on the uh, the weeks leading up to the uh, prom, a lot of sales, of, you know, things for young ladies to wear. And the day after the prom, a lot of recognition that uh, this was not really good stuff. It was it was fabled, but it was all true. You interviewed a number of former Riches employees for this series. So what did they tell you about working there? I mean, obviously, it was a great experience for customers. Obviously, there were some rules and some rigid ones about how to treat customers. How did that feel for them? Everybody we interviewed, and almost anybody you go up to on the street and go, Riches. Oh, I love Riches. <laughs> you know? And their employees to a man and woman just say it was a wonderful place to work. Mm. For example, we have in connection with the school teachers and their problem. We interviewed a retired ophthalmologist whose mother and aunts both taught school during the Depression, and he remembers them bringing those scripts in and using them like real money. I'm speaking with GPB's Don Smith. He's executive producer of the new GPB original series, Riches Remembered. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought, or at gpbnews.org. Who else are we going to meet in this series? Sadly, there are some people that we hoped you would meet who are not with us anymore, Hmm. including when we are talking about Martin Luther King and the unpleasantness that Riches was involved with there, then there was also a Lonnie King, no kin, who was with them in the sit-in. And we had talked to Lonnie half a dozen times. How you doing? How you feel? Well, I'm getting better, but I, I, I just don't want to talk right now. And goodbye, Lonnie. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But let's dig into that a little bit. This is historic. Most dramatically, the Magnolia Room restaurant was segregated, as many places were at the time. On October 19, 1960, Atlanta students and Martin Luther King Jr. staged a sit-in there. This, I understand, was the first time MLK was actually arrested for an act of civil disobedience. Yeah, and this story takes pages to describe. But the upshot of it was, on October 27th, MLK got out of jail. Mm-hmm. So eight <laughs> days later. Lonnie was with him and two Spellman students. What was required to get Dr. King out of jail involved, of course, him, his wife Coretta, Governor Vandiver, Robert Kennedy, and John F. Kennedy. So the Kennedys were in it with all of their firepower. But, but, you know, you talked about people being kind and generous and open and extending credit and helping out teachers, but not letting people of color eat at the Magnolia Room restaurant? It was 1960. It was not long before Dick Rich agreed that they should be able to dine. He was perfectly happy to have them shop. And he was practical, but he was also principled. So it was not a segregated shopping experience, just in the dining rooms and probably, presumably, the restrooms and fountains? Yeah. Riches then merged in 1976 with Federated Way Incorporated, one of these big, uh, owned a number of department stores. How did that change things? Well, it eventually led to the Riches name disappearing that, that is almost as complicated as the King story. But 
there was a lot of buying and selling and <laughs> money losing and money winning. But I think you will find, if you give people a rundown of just the history, when it says Dick Rich died, which he did the year before, the federated buyout. So 1975-ish. I think that was, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, that when you lost Dick Rich, you lost somebody very important for multiple reasons. But it just wasn't riches. It wasn't what people thought riches should be. Mm-hmm. Rich's flagship store in downtown Atlanta closed in 1991, but people were still loyal to the brand. How does that brand loyalty exist today? Uh, only in memory, of course, but boy, are they vivid. Mm-hmm. And people will show you their tweed coat that still has the richest thing. I've or, seen them at thrift stores. I think it's 7,000 people on the Facebook group that is remembering riches. We are riches, remember. Many of those people, they have souvenirs. And we are having a little party here at GBB on May the 11th, in which we are inviting anybody who would like to join us who has some riches tchotchkes or a riches story to uh, come join us. Riches had, by my count, more than 150 departments. So you can imagine everything from 22s to silk gowns. And and it also was almost an article of faith that riches will have it, and if they don't, they'll get it. (laughs) Well, people have many memories and memorabilia of riches. What are things that stand out when you hear stories in, in people's minds? There are two. The Pink Pig and the Great Tree. All right. What is the Pink Pig and what is the Great Tree? The Pink Pig was an appropriately colored (laughs) monorail ride that took kids over the toy department. And it took their parents as well. Oh, that must have been massive. How many kids could fit in a Pink Pig? I never counted. (laughs) (laughs) But not as many as could stand in the streets and watch the great tree lighted. That was the official start of Thanksgiving, and it was something to see. There was a chorus on every floor, and there was a 60 to 70 foot tall tree on top. And on Thanksgiving night, tens of thousands of people got together down there. I mean, just standing in the street and Oh, Holy Night was the finished song. And when they got to Oh, Night Divine, right? That thing lit up and a hoop went up that you could have heard in Kansas. When did they stop doing that? It was stopped there, obviously, when the big store closed. Mm -hmm. It has been carried on uh, at Lenox, but ain't the same. What did you learn? I mean, you know, we have the Krauss department store, big department stores in Chicago, New York, at all, all at one time, stuff of legend. What did you learn as somebody who used to shop at Riches while working on this documentary? Any surprises? One of the things I was most impressed with is the Rich Foundation. 
store has been closed for Lord knows how long, but the foundation is still open and still giving money, charitable money, and is supervised by a man named Tom Asher, who is one of the finest people I have ever met. He knows almost everything. He is patient with not always perfectly informed questions. And he, too, says it does seem ironic that with the store gone, that this place is still operating. But they've still got money, and so they will keep on doing so as long as they can. Don Smith, he is executive producer of the new GPB original series, Riches Remembered. The first episode of the show is out now. Don, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You can watch it in full on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. And that's where we would love to hear your conversations or thoughts about riches. And you can leave your comment on our Facebook page or we might read and we might read it on the air. You can also reach us on Twitter at OST Talk. Email us on second thought at gpb.org. Leave us a message at 404-500-9457. But better yet, come join us on Saturday, May 11th, when GPB is hosting a Riches Remembered event. You can bring your stories, your memorabilia, and just your love for riches. There are details at gpbnews.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.